This is To Hear Knows When, Great Irish Albums Revisited, a Learn and Sing production. Paul McDermott, and this is a podcast about great Irish albums. It's named after a My Bloody Valentine song. If you go to at Learn and Sing on Twitter or paulmcdermott.ie forward slash podcast, you'll find links to episode notes and lots of further information on all the albums we've covered so far. So if you're new to the podcast, that's albums by The Frank and Walters, Ash, Nina Hines, Blue in Heaven, Whipping Boy, the Fatima Mansions, Roller Skate Skinny, and loads of others. And I'd ask that if you've enjoyed any episode to date, then please consider subscribing, liking, and sharing. This is episode 21 of the podcast, and it focuses on Nurse by Therapy. So I first saw Ridley Scott's 1982 film Blade Runner late one night on Channel 4, sometime in the mid-90s. Rick Deckard, played by Harrison Ford, is tasked with retiring a number of bioengineered humanoids, or replicants, including Leon Kowalski, played by Brian James. During a chase scene, Leon ambushes Deckard, knocks a gun out of his hand and hits him. (coughs) Grabbing Deckard, Leon utters the immortal line, Wake up! Time to die! So that's where therapy got the sample at the start of Meat Abstract the opening track on Baby Teeth, the band's debut mini-album on Ouija Records that I'd bought from Comet Records on Washington Street in Cork a few years earlier in July 1991. Back then it took stumbling across a late-night movie to identify the origin of the sample. Meat Abstract had first appeared a year earlier. On the 11th of August 1990, Melody Maker awarded Single of the Week to Come Together by Primal Scream. Other bands who had singles reviewed that week included the B-52s, Sanity Ann, Eric B and Rakim and The Associates. Whipping Boy's self-titled debut EP for Cherie Records was reviewed and so too was Meat Abstract. Therapy had self-released a 7-inch of the track. In a short 22-word review, Everett True stated, Irish Amalgam between the hardcore corrosive trash of Wax Tracks records and someone meaty, beaty, big and grungy like Tad, fine stuff. Now don't forget that in a pre-internet world it sometimes took a bit of time to decipher references in reviews. In time I learnt that Wax Tracks was a record label based in Chicago predominantly known for releasing industrial music by artists such as Ministry, Meat Beat Manifesto, Frontline Assembly and others. It was also known for releasing stateside records by the band Front 242 and other Belgian New Beat artists. The someone meaty, beaty, big and grungy like Tadline from the review referred to the Seattle band fronted by Tad Doyle, who were on Sub Pop Records and were regarded as one of the heaviest Northwestern bands of the grunge era. I had successfully decoded the Melody Maker review and would now wait for Dave Fanning or John Peel to play therapy. I used to find it impossible to tune into Peel's nightly BBC Radio 1 programme from Cork, but I could get the BBC World Service on Longwave and I always taped the weekly programme that Peel broadcast on that station. Sure enough, 
therapy duly recorded sessions for both Fanning and Peel. Baby Teeth, the band's debut, came out the following summer and in his review for Select magazine, Andrew Perry wrote, snapped up on the strength of one single by Ouija, Belfast Trio Therapy remind you how thrilling post-hardcore noise was. Baby Teeth has all the ingredients of great three-piece noise in the finest tradition of Big Black and Killdozer. In February 1992, Andrew Perry again reviewed Therapy for Select. The band had just put out Pleasure Death, their second mini-LP for Ouija Records. Pleasure Death was produced by the band's sound engineer, Harvey Burrell. The recording was engineered by John Loder at his Southern Studios. It was a better sounding recording than its predecessor, but it still was a little muddy. It didn't fully capture Therapy's astonishing live assault of the time. Perry wrote, If Pleasure Death isn't the leap forward they might have hoped for, the potential remains. He continued, their first full-length platter will surely torch all comers for crafted nastiness when it arrives. And arrive it did, later that year. A few months after Pleasure Death was released, Therapy signed a record deal with A&M Records. Now at the time in our world, Therapy signing to a major label was huge news and it was news that an awful lot of music fans were absolutely horrified by. We needn't have worried though. We got to hear what Therapy on A&M would sound like in October of 1992 with the release of the extraordinary Teeth Grinder. And what did it sound like? Well, it sounded exactly like Therapy really, I suppose. It was big, it was loud, it was driving. It was a crazy banger. It was brilliant. It reached number 19 in the Irish charts and number 30 in the UK charts. Therapy with a chart hit on their own terms. Now Nurse, Therapy's debut full-length album, followed a few weeks after Teeth Grinder. And again, Andrew Perry reviewing it in Select magazine said, Live, they're the proverbial incendiary power unit. Wild, driven, razor-edged. But their previous two mini-LPs on Ouija, Baby Teeth and Pleasure Death, lost some of the focus in muddy, low-budget production. Perry continued, they wisely kept their live soundman Harvey Burrell at the helm for this all-important full-length debut, but with more time and money at their disposal from A&M, they honed the record they've always threatened to make. The enemy were no less glowing of Nurse writing, therapy kick-off sounding like Nirvana and end up with a final guitar stroke that imitates the Beatles. In between, Nurse is solid therapy, pure and simply staggering. It had been an absolute roller coaster of a year. Pleasure Death had gone to number one in the indie charts, and by year's end, 120,000 copies of Nurse, their debut album, had been sold. And if 92 had been a crazy year for the band, nothing could have prepared them for what was right around the corner in 93 with their next three releases for AM. The short, sharp, shock EP with its lead track, Screamager, was released in March. It reached number nine in the UK and resulted in the first of three Top of the Pops appearances for the band that year. This retired new entry is into number nine from the short, sharp, shocky B. Welcome with Scream Angel Therapy. The Face the Strange EP, with its lead track Turn, followed in June, reaching number 18 in the UK. And in August, Opal Mantra reached number 14 in the UK. 
four years of constant gigging and hard work had paid off. Therapy were now huge. The next album, 94's Troublegum, would take them global and ultimately sell over a million copies. But for this episode, we're going to return to 1992's Nurse, the band's debut full-length album and the record that bridged that gap between their early indie career and the later chart success. So here we go, to Here Knows When, Great Irish Albums Revisited, Episode 21, Nurse by Therapy. It's my great pleasure to welcome Andy Kearns. Andy, I hope you're doing well. Yeah, thanks for having us on, Paul. Yeah, I'm doing doing great. Thanks a lot. Now, you've spent a whole summer back on the road, a load of festivals in Europe, your own tour of Europe before the festivals. You're heading into an autumn of gigging now. You've the rescheduled Irish states. And then there's a big UK tour, November, December, I think. Is that right? That's right. We did a 30th anniversary tour in the UK in March, April. And then we did 44 shows around Europe. After that, we've done a summer of festivals. Now, these shows starting on Cypress Avenue on the 8th of October in Cork, that's more of these kind of celebration greatest hits, kind of, you know, 30th anniversary shows. And then we end at the UK with, we're, we're doing a tour of small towns and venues where we're just doing the early stuff uh, and more obscure stuff. And that's really to round off the 30th anniversary of the band. Did you ever think, Andy, did you ever think you'd be putting together set lists looking back over 30 years worth of material? No, and actually I always remember this really, really well. I remember in 1992, when Pleasure Death was out, uh, early 92, we were playing at Manchester in the university. We did a show there. And I remember from uh, a DJ called Gary Crowley from London interviewed us. And I remember he came into the dressing room and we'd heard of him. He had been on television. He had been in New Music Express, stuff like this. So we were quite excited. This famous guy came in and his first question was, you guys are a relatively new band. You've been playing for two years. What's your plans for the future? And would you ever see yourselves being like, for example, the Rolling Stones? And I remember it's on television. Someone showed me a clip of this. So I go, all three of us burst out laughing and just said, you know, well, the nature of the music that we play, this kind of thing, you know, don't be, don't be absurd. <laughs> and yet. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing, isn't it? If it's okay with you, Andy, I wanted to talk about mm-hmm. Nurse. I'm really interested in that transition from the first two mini LPs on Ouija and then that transition into Nurse as the uh, the major label debut, you know. I, like an awful lot of other people at the time, when I heard that Therapy were after signing to A&M, I was really worried as a fan of the band that something very different was going mm-hmm. to emanate from A&M. Nurse always sounded to me like the record therapy would have made all along if they had just had a better studio and I suppose more money and time. And that's why um, I've always been interested in this idea of bands that make that jump, I suppose. Because you know back then, Andy, you know better than anyone. It was a big deal back then for a band like Ye to sign to a major. That was a big deal back in 1992, wasn't it? Are there, Paul, there are still people that still don't speak to me. Hello. You're joking. Oh, yeah, I kid you not. There are people, you know, that won't speak to me. In, in Ireland, London, there's a promoter 
in Austria of all places uh, that still, I saw him at a festival a while ago, he was our promoter and he washed his hands of us whenever we went to NM and I passed him backstage at a festival in Austria and he completely blanked me. It's still, it was a lot bigger then than it is now. I think it's different now, you know, you can see punk festivals sponsored by corporate energy drinks now and no one bats an eyelid. But back then it was, it was a really, really big deal. Um, and I do remember it being for us, I mean, I'll, I'll touch on this later on, but I think the nature of this record, looking back on it now, I can actually see it for what it was. And it, it was a, an album made by Abandoned Flux, but you're, you're completely right. I think if we'd have made another album on Ouija or on Touch and Go, who we were on in America, it would have sounded similar. I mean, for that reason, like, you know, we'd released an album in January. We used our sound engineer, Harvey Burrell, who had done Pleasure Death, the previous album, as a producer. We recorded it in two weeks at a small studio. Now, I must point out, this is whenever we signed to NM and we talked about making a record, they said, well, you guys work quickly. So there's no, we can't see any reason at the minute to stop that. So if you guys have got material ready to go, go into the studio and we'll book in for two weeks. And it was, you know, to have two albums out in one year, Pleasure Death and, and uh, Nurse. But they did actually ask us, would you like to work with Butch Fig? That was a Nirvana producer. And we just went, absolutely not, because I'd cut my hair off for that reason. We didn't want to be seen as a grunge band. That was because there were so many different influences, as you'll hear on Nurse as well. But it, it was, yeah, it was a, a bizarre time. And it, 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 I think looking back on it now, I mean, I knew, knowing I'd be talking to you, I gave the album a listen last night and this morning. And it's it's amazing how two things fall filter into this record Irishness and also that sellout um, accusation and uh, the after effects it had on all our psyches yeah. and I can actually hear that in the record now which at the time I couldn't but you know can listen to it now and yet Andy a band you loved a band I loved too you know Husker Du had yeah. made that jump from SST mm. to uh, a big label they seemed to do it on their own terms as well, actually, didn't they? They did, and that we, I mean, people seem to forget we did get full artistic control. There were, there were certain things that they, they, they annoy you at. The record label, obviously, they say things which record labels say. But when we signed, we had full artistic control. You know, we did. We could have waited a few, we could have waited a year and went in for four months rather than two weeks and used a big name producer. It was our choice to use Harvey Burrell, a sound engineer. It was our choice to get a record out that year. And it, it used to make me laugh. I mean, people would come up to me in the street in Belfast or in Dublin and say, you guys have sold out whilst wearing a Nirvana shirt. And I would have to point out to them, you do realise that Nirvana are on Geffen Records? But, you know, and it was, I think it was more a trope. It was a way of life. Um, have you seen that Jawbreaker movie Yeah, uh, recently? That I mean, we all watched that as a band before the last tour. We we watched it, and you know, Jawbreaker, a band that we can take or leave, but some of their albums are great. And how much that really, really nearly destroyed that band. And it was like that. You know, we had, um, and it continued whenever we went to America with Nurse. We hadn't been to North America, even though our first two albums had been on Quarter Stick Touch and Go, and they were critically acclaimed. And the first time we went over there was with AM. And, just as people in the UK had heard Nurse and realised that we weren't going to make Bad Out of Hell, we we sort of, people real, realised they, they exhaled and they went, okay, well, therapy's still doing what therapy do, that's okay, it's on a major, let's see where they take it. So by the time we got to North America, though, we had to start from scratch. We had the same thing. We would turn up and people would give us abuse at clubs and, you know, people wouldn't come to gigs because I liked your early stuff. So 
it was looking back on it now it does seem ridiculous and trying to explain it to someone but it was as i said earlier people still don't speak to me michael i'm not sure about five but you know they didn't speak to us for years over this that's mad <laughs> andy that's mad and yet you know um just because you were on Ouija through mm-hmm. Southern, just because you were on um, cool mm-hmm. labels like that, they had no money for tour support. Like they were able to get your record into shops. But after that, you were on your own. You were playing squats, sleeping mm. on floors, all that stuff. You needed A&M to get into the States, didn't you? You wouldn't have been able to kind of do that off your own. Well, back. never mind the States, even to get, get out of Ireland, really. You know what I mean? To play other places because it was all coming out of our own pocket. You know, everything we'd done, we'd done ourselves. There's first label. You know, people forget that the, you know, the first album we did, Baby Teeth, we weren't given that money by Ouija Records. We had already saved up and recorded that album. We had the album ready to go. Ouija Records came along and Gary Walker loved what he had heard. I'd managed to go and see Silverfish opening for Revolting Cox, Al Jurgensen's band. Me and Michael give Al Jurgensen and Leslie Silverfish a tip. She gave it to Gary Walker. That was the album. I knew, so it wasn't as if he gave us money to make this up. He already had, it was a different story with Pleasure Death because Southern fi- financed that. But that was done in two days as well. And it was, we, we I mean, to be honest, I, would, I love being on those labels. I would have been on those labels if we could have functioned as a band. But we needed to pay for fuel. You know, this was the early days of the band. It was a decision we had to make. And I remember we all had a band meeting. And the, the plan at the time was we would stay on Ouija and Southern to make the first album. And there was all these plans, but we didn't have money to rehearse. We didn't have money to travel. Fife and Michael were both at college um, and they had had outstanding student loan bills to pay. And we couldn't afford to do all this. And we we took the decision. We knew the flag we would get. Bearing in mind, this is something that might touch on. The three of us are from very, very working class areas. We weren't from wealthy middle class parents. We were from very, very working class homes. So, you know, all of us had kind of parents that couldn't afford to bail us out either. So it was something that um, we had. To, it was a pragmatic decision, really. And, you know, we took the flag for it, but we made it. The first time I saw you, Andy, was in Sir Henry's in Cork on a bill with Babes in mm. Toyland and um, a local Cork band called Village Idiots. Yeah. During that gig, Fife's, the skin on his bass drum mm-hmm. broke. There was a bit of pandemonium for a couple of minutes. I have here, um, this is from a radio show a few years ago, all about um, Sir Henry's. That was done for a radio station in Cork. And I'm going to play you this. This is Murty McCarthy from the Sultans explaining what happened. I remember that therapy gig, actually. Um, it's a very strange thing when you do a gig. You know, you always have your spare strings for your guitar and you'd have a spare snare uh, skin. But no one's ever thought of bringing as long a second bass drum skin. And the bass drum skin went during the therapy gig, massive crowd there, and it was like everyone realised there's no bass skin, where are we going to get a bass skin? Uh, Sutton's at the time were rehearsing in Sullivan's Key School, so I ran over and took off the bass skin, brought it, you know, ran through the crowd to big chairs with this bass skin coming back in, like, you know. It's, and still to this day, I see loads of bands, and they don't carry. Did you carry spare bass skin ever since? No, I don't. Uh, still, like, and I just. But you haven't learned your lesson. Sullivan's Key School saved the day with yeah. its location. But like, there was about yeah. about fifteen twenty minute lull in yeah, proceedings yeah. while nothing was happening, because there was no bass skin. <laughs> and then obviously you appeared, and uh, they so they fixed it on yeah. on Fife's uh, drum kit, Fife Ewing. Yeah. Uh, brilliant. There's a little memory. Andy. I remember that honestly clear as day because I remember well, Babes in Toyland we got to know really well. And we, we got on like a house on fire with them. And I remember getting to Cork that day 
And I remember that game. God bless him, Marty going and getting that for us. He was in that, and we've seen him down the line so many times. I absolutely adore that guy. He's brilliant. And I remember that. And I think I also remember during the gap, I sort of started doing cover versions to fill in the space. I think I was playing like um, Jolene by Dolly Parton and all this just for a laugh while and everyone was going, get on with it. You know, and then as you're right, as he said, it was coming through the crowd. But oh, that was absolutely amazing. I remember that clearest day. And I do remember the night before we had actually slept outside the venue because we had nowhere to stay. So I remember myself and my came down, we parked in the front of Sir Henry's. And we needed someone to look after the gear. So I think Fife and I think a lad called Harry that looked after helping us. The two of them went off and got breakfast. And me and Michael slept outside the front of Sir Henry's on top of all the amps. <laughs> it was a great gig, Andy. Very memorable. So this period then, okay, uh, Pleasure Death comes out early 92, mm. I think it was. Lots more touring. And then eventually you do the deal with A&M. You get a bit of cash. And someone in the band knows someone, I think it was your manager, knows someone down in Carlo of all mm. places who has the use of a house and ye kind of decamp down there for uh, a week or two, probably summer of 1992, I suppose, mm. to basically write material yeah. for this record. I kind of think I've that right. So that's right. We... um we we signed to we we agreed to sign to AM. We met the guy and, and as I say, within about two or three days he'd asked us, Did we want to work with Butch Fig? Um we said absolutely not. We said, you know, we want to do our own thing. They asked us had we any material ready to go. We had probably the guts of four or five ideas, but with bits of lyrics done. And the way that therapy always worked was we just we just love playing and we love recording. And we um that we knew that we needed to write stuff. So our manager knew somebody that owned a house that was live, working in America at the time. And they, they had this big uh, manor house down in Carlo. And they said the lads can have their own little place. There's four bedrooms and they can set up a PA system in the front room and rehearse. And we were just there for, I think, a fortnight it was with these ideas. And um, it was quite a, I mean, this is quite, this has been documented place before. It was in the middle of nowhere. It was right up. It was on a farm. And it was right up the end of a lane. And I think it was like an hour walk from Carlow Town by foot on small, dark country roads. So we didn't go out much. So we literally lived in each other's pockets. Um, I brought my car, I think, to go out once, once a week for supplies. And we also brought a lot of alcohol and some amphetamines. So there was, you know, by the end of two weeks, there was uh, quite a lot of psychosis. It said, <laughs> I think, yeah. yeah. You've said before, Andy, that you made a trip back up north during that and you went to a club and the likes of, I suppose, Front 242 would have been about 91, 92 as well, surely was an influence. And yeah. out of, I suppose, that experience of the speed and emerging techno and so on and so forth, something like um, Teeth Grinder probably. Well, well that out. was it. I mean, we were very into at the time. Well, I really liked, whenever I met Fife, he was more into hardcore punk, Dead Kennedy's Minor Threat. But I really like, I mean, I like that too, but I'd kind of really discovered Belgian New Beat from 242, Lords of Acid, Erotic Dissidents. And he was asking me what this was all about. And there was this really famous compilation, New Beat, with a black and red cover, remember, which I hadn't lent it to him. And he liked it. And me, Abstract, our very first single, came from listening to New Beat. So if you, if you look at, you know, Nurse, for example, um, you've got Teeth Grinder, you've got the the verse in Disgrace Lands, you've got Neck Freak, you know, those kind of things are even part of Zip, but they could have been from a new beat record. 
Uh, some of the little chord progressions, the kind of very spacey and modulated guitar and the rhythms. And with Teeth Grinder, yeah, that's true. I was coming down the bus very hungover the next day from going to this club. I had to get the bus to Dublin, then change, get the bus to Carlo. And I had the riff in my head. You know, those were these were days before mobile phones. So that did it, did it, did it, did it. So you can imagine the psychosis sitting. And I was trying to remember that for about five hours and wrote down some brief musical notation and a piece of paper. And I remember getting in and said, I've got a riff and I think we should do like a new beat kind of thing. And they were like, okay, right. And away we went. Um, a lot of that was from, we, we liked a lot of stuff as well. We were uh, a band we really loved. We're a band called Palehead. And it was just a project. It was Ian McKay and Al Jorgensen. They did this sort of a six track, four to six track EP, depending on what version you bought. Uh, Meat Beat Manifesto. That was another one. And again, a lot of this at the time was us remembering it, the climate of the time. You know, we existed before we'd heard of Nirvana, in a post-Nirvana, post-Nevermind wave, we were very, very self-conscious that we didn't want to get roped in with that. So I think that's what made us especially go and make sure we kept these influences in there. Because you've got something like the opening track in the album, Nausea. It's ministry, but it could also be Nirvana. It's a very stompy kind of melodic rock song. So it was important to us that stuff like Teeth Grind and stuff went on the record. Who would have picked Teeth Grinder as a single? I'd love to have been at the meeting where Teeth Grinders play to the A&R guy and you're going, this is the single. I'd love to have been at those meetings. Well, Fife chose Teeth Grinder as a single. You see, this was at the time when the record company were very wary of having already said to us, you guys have got artistic control. So we were going to hold them up to that. And what we what we used to do at the time was myself and Fife would take turns because of who's could do. I mean, I would write most of the the guitar riffs and the melodies, but I would say Fife would sing, and we because of Grant Hart and Bob Mould, what we do is we take turns. So I'd sung Nausea, uh, when we got Teeth Grinder, Fife said, "Well, I'll sing that," and admirably sang it and drummed at the same time, which is phenomenal. And the record company wanted the song Perversionality, which opened side two. They came and said, "We think this is really good. This is." a bit Jane's Addiction-y, it's a little bit kind of Warrior Soul, you know, we can see this kind of working for you guys. That hadn't actually crossed our mind. Then they said, well, what about Nausea? Because it's a bit, you know, it's got that big stompy rhythm and it's... And then Fife said, well, I'd like Teeth Grinder to be the single. And the record company just went, yep, yeah, whatever, we'll do a video for it. And that was it. So that was the, the first and only single off the album in America. Perversonality and um, Nausea were taken to radio. And the same in Europe, yeah. but in the UK, there was one single and that was Teeth Grinder. But it was, it was honestly, it was very straightforward. It was just like, this is what we want. And I think that was a honeymoon period with the label because, you know, they, they'd sold themselves to us as you guys get full artistic control. And I think it was a strange choice. You know, it should have been something in their eyes, probably a bit more guitar laden or a bit more riffy. Yeah. But, you know, I th- I'm glad we chose that one because it's, um, it kind of went, went for what we wanted to do and not be seen as just a sort of grunge man. After writing the songs in Carlo, you decamped up to Wicklow. Mm. Uh, you spent a, a basically to do, I suppose, kind of rough demos mm. of of the songs you'd written in Carlo, a place called um, I think it was originally called Armstrong's Barn. Mm-hmm. It it had been a restaurant back in the yeah. um, back in the eighties. Yeah. A guy called um, Paolo Tullio had it, uh, a restaurant, and then it was a yeah. recording studio for a while. You demoed it there for a couple of days in Wicklow, I think. And then it was over to Wales, wasn't it? Local studios up in the valleys, I think, in Wales, isn't it? Yeah, well, the uh, the, uh, the studio where we did the couple of days there, 
with somewhere that are a manager who, you know, he was a promoter before he was a manager. And he knew the studio from various bands he had known that had been in there. And the reason we chose that studio was there was a cellist. We wanted someone to play cello on the track Gone. And the lad that played cello was near to the studio. So they said, why don't you drop in here for a couple of days? And I think that we got there late in the evening and he dropped in and played the track with us. And then the next day we recorded it. And it sounded grand. You, you really got what we were after. And then, yes, we did. We went over to Wales. Now, local studios was uh, just outside Newport. I think it was in Kerman, I think the name of the place, if I'm pronouncing it correctly. Again, that was... Um, it was it was a beautiful studio. It was quite small. It wasn't too posh or too corporate. It was... But that was the nicest studio you'd ever been into that, up to that point, wouldn't it? It, it was. And ironically, there's a good bit of history in it because they, looking back on it now, we didn't realise this at the time, but the first people that had... The person that made us her dinner, who was brilliant, called Donna, Donna Matthews, this hippie girl. That's Elastica, isn't Donna it? Donna from Elastica, but she yeah, yeah. she she went on to do that. The tape op, the tape engineer that helped out Harvey the Bruiser was John Lee, who went on to become the drummer and feeder. And there'd been a band in before. There was a caravan at the top of um, at the thing, and there'd been a bunch of young Mancunian lads in that wrecked the place. So they said, you can slay in the house, it's residential, or you can stay in the caravan. But those Mank lads that were in wrecked it, and we said, what were they called? And it was uh, a young band called Rain, whose singer was called Liam Gallagher. They were in the logo before us. So all this, you know, we found out retrospectively at the time. Obviously, we, we, we still kept in touch with Donna over the years and with John Lee. So we, we would always go and see Elastica and have a great time chatting with Donna. But I remember the, the most mysterious thing about it was apparently the guy that owned Logo was in some big 70s prog rock band, but he would never tell anyone which band it was. And he looked like, God bless him, he looked like somebody that had been in the prog rock band in the 70s. He had like... Um, big blonde kind of straight hair and he had got like, he always wore tinted aviator shades and he would mysteriously walk in in the morning, say hello and then disappear at night. But no one ever found out what band it was. But yeah, it was really good. It was in the middle of nowhere. I think we were out, there was a rec room. We spent all the time either in the rec room or the studio and we went out twice into Newport uh, to TJ's to, to catch a couple of punk gigs that were on Cowboy Killers one night and I think the next night was Sam. Um, might been Dub War or somebody like that, but that was the only time we were at. Oh, man. I saw Dub War around that time. What's his name? Benji? Benji, I, yeah, Gindred Lads, yeah. I still remember him winding up one of those World War II um, air raid sirens yeah. Yeah. in the middle of the stage. Like, it, it was one of the most amazing openings of a gig I've ever seen. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah. Dub War. Yeah. That's a name I haven't heard mentioned in years, Andy. <laughs> Great bands, yeah. We'd, well, we, we knew people as well um, in TJ's, uh, in Newport Legendary Club. Shellac had played there, Fugazi had played there. And we had done a show there uh, whenever we were on Ouija. And they basically knew we were in town and they said, anytime you want to come down for a drink or a gig. But as I say, we only got out twice because it was such an intense period of work. So, yeah, we, we let off steam those two nights we've gone to TJ's. You've said before that uh, a lot of the time in, in Loco was spent on five strums. Yes, yeah. We weren't really, you see, before we'd only ever spent two, three days in the studio. And I think Fife, uh, I was very good friends with Harvey. Who, who, well, we're all friends with Harvey. Harvey was our sound engineer and he produced Pleasure Death. And the, the material was kind of written, but there was a, 
there was it we we got into that habit of we would stay up late and not rise until late so you know the day wouldn't really start until 12 or one o'clock and this went on for a lot of days and i think the idea was harvey was concerned that the drums sounded right and we kept saying to him look the drums sound really good They're, they sound huge at some point we are going to have to do guitars and then it got to the point when I think there was four days left. And I think the idea was, oh, good old Andy and Michael, you know what I mean? They know what they're doing. They'll they'll, they'll nail this room. So we did. I mean, obviously, we knew the songs from rehearsals and stuff like that. We got it down. But it was um, it was always up until recently. It was always a, a bit of an issue with myself and Michael that the whole thing was kind of, I don't think it was deliberately set out like that. I just think it was, we with you know, it's, that kind of, it's a bit like whenever you're young and you've got homework to do you leave it to the last minute. And I think it was almost like, yeah, yeah, well, Harvey was going, yeah, we'll do the guitars. Yeah, yeah, don't worry about it. And then he realized there was only four days to do it after me and Michael badgering him the whole time. And it was done. But I think the worst thing that I felt for him, because he got himself so wound up then, because he had to do the guitars, the overdubs, the vocals, the backing vocals and the bass for the 10 songs all in four days, which was very stressful for him, not so much us, because we knew what we were doing. But I think for him, he found it quite stressful. <laughs> And wasn't the version of Gone that you mentioned earlier, the one that was done in Wicklow with the cellist, wasn't that used? That version was used on the record, wasn't it? I think? It was, yeah, because we couldn't better it. I mean, initially when we wrote the song, I'd, I'd kind of written it on just on the acoustic guitar. Like I wanted to write something like Neil Young would write. And then Neil Young wasn't a very good reference point for therapy at that point in time. My, Michael and Neil didn't really know a great deal about Neil Young, didn't really like him that much. So we kind of made it a bit more like Slint. It was like something off spiral. I'm very, very quiet, ambient, gently plucked guitars. And whenever we went in to do it in um, Loco, it just sounded a lot more bombastic. I don't know what, what it was or whether it was because the, dr the drums, I think, had been because they'd been recorded first when we went to put the guitars on top of it. The drums in Wicklow, they, they sounded brilliant. They were really ambient and they were almost like, if you listen to them, they're like records of, they're like drums off a jazz record. Whereas the version that we'd done in Loco was a slightly more anthemic and bombastic and it, it turned the song into something else. So we decided to go with the original version. I'm going to play another clip for you here, Andy. We were talking earlier, like you mentioned about um, a promoter that kind of snubbed you years later. John Peel kept playing you, which is kind of unusual because Peel was kind of known for kind of abandoning bands if they got a bit of money. <laughs> he kept playing you. Thoughts on haircuts, number 23, in a continuing series. Oh, we represented them, man. As somebody who needs haircuts. <laughs> Skip loads of enthusiastic reviews and with justification, I think, for once. That's Therapy from the LP on Ouija Records. The LP's called Baby Teeth. And that was Loser Cop. That was Stretchheads who were in session. Excellent stuff indeed from Therapy. That's their contribution to Volume 3. And, of course, in addition to the CD, you also get uh, a substantial magazine. And I'm sure that your copy of the CD won't fall out of the magazine, as mine has done. Ooh, my soul. That's Therapy on Ouija Records, a track from the LP Pleasure Death. Uh, Fantasy Bag is the title of it. Before that, it was George... Oh, 
sleep, I grind my teeth. And that comes from therapy, and it's a sort of remix of Teeth Grinder. In fact, it's one that they call the tee-he-dub mix. And in case those of you listening to the programme back in Dear Old Blight, you haven't got the message yet, this programme's also being heard on Radio 4U in Berlin, and uh, millions of listeners in Berlin... Oh, I do wish I'd let Strange Fruit, or someone, I don't care who, really, put that out as a single. You'd be surprised how often our house echoes to cries of Kimball! That's the fall, of course, number 34 in the festive 50. I'm tempted to play that again, actually. Wow, what a great track it is. Uh, right, what have I for you next? This is, well, number 33, fairly logically, uh, Therapy. <laughs> And I always say the same thing after that, so on this occasion I'm not going to. That's therapy, though, and Teeth Grinder, number 33 in the Festive 50. That's a blast from the past, Andy. Teeth Grinder, single, I think it was around October 92, and then Teeth Grinder's number 33 in the mm. Festive Top 50 there yeah. with Peel. It's funny, when I was pulling those up, he says, uh, I'm not going to say what I always say yeah. after playing Teeth Grinder. <laughs> I couldn't find what he always was saying, so, so I've no idea what he always used to say after playing teeth grinder oh no we don't either he, i mean bless him we met him because he gave us two peel sessions and i remember the single after teeth grinder funny enough was screamager it was the short sharp shock ep and i remember when the radio it was nm took the and when nm took that to him uh he actually said i don't like this song the lead song but i like the band and he played totally random man off it and I think that was then the last time he played Therapy without release. He didn't play anything since then. But he did actually play something off the EP. And we always respected that because he could have just said, I'm never playing them again. But he, I think he played Totally Random Man or Auto Surgery. But he just said, no, this isn't for me. Scream Major, which you could understand. It was quite a, a leap from, you know, Teeth Grinder. Oh, but um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I did uh, spend time in his company. After that, I remember we played the Phoenix Festival in 1994. And... Um, we were chatting about football of all things and he asked whereabouts in Northern Ireland. I was from the North of Ireland I was from. And I said, uh, I'm from Belfast, but I live in a small market town called Ballyclare. And he said, have they got a football team? And I said, yes, yeah, Ballyclare Comrades, which he thought was uh, an incredible name for a football team. You know, was, are they a communist? And I said, no, they're, they're all like from first world war. It was set up afterwards, whenever they came home. Um, and I got my football top from the club. I went home and went down to the club and got my football shirt and sent it to him. Uh, so this is 1994 after he'd stopped playing and he did read it on the radio. He said, uh, big thanks to Andy Kearns who sent me a Ballyclare Commons football shirt, but unfortunately it doesn't fit me. It's too small. <laughs> so that was really sweet. Yeah. And um, yeah, That's it, was, it was great, you know, because like uh, obviously he was such a big part of our lives growing up. You know, we, whenever myself and Fife first met before even Michael was in the band, we would swap peel cassettes. I'm sure you did just a lot of people that heard peel would tape the show on school nights. And then the next day, if someone had missed it, they'd let someone else have it. And we discovered so much music through that. Yeah, absolutely. I have a review of, of nurse here from, um, Select magazine. You remember Select the? the I do remember the, it well. Yeah, the glossy monthlies as opposed to the inky weeklies. Here's their review. A glowing review. I think it was four out of five stars. Live, they're the proverbial incendiary power unit, wild, driven, and razor edged. Their previous two mini LPs on Ouija lost some of the focus in muddy, low-budget production. They've wisely kept their sound man Harvey Burrell at the helm for this all-important full-length debut. But with more time and money at their disposal from A&M, they've honed the record that they always threatened 
to make. You'll take that. I'll take that. Yeah, I remember. I think that was Andrew yeah. Perry. Yeah, wrote that. Was, yeah. I remember because he was a big supporter. I mean, Select was great. David Kavanagh and everyone wrote for it. It was a great magazine. Yeah, I mean, I remember because we didn't know, going back to what we talked about earlier with, you know, jumping ship from a, an indie label to a major, I think part of us was ready for a dear, oh, dear, oh, dear, you know, like all down the line it to be, this is terrible. And I think apart from a couple, the majority of them were really, really great reviews. And they said the same thing. Look, this is this is therapy. They haven't turned into, you know, I don't know, the toy dolls yeah. or something like this. This is kind of therapy. And then at some point before the end of that year, A&M tell you that you've sold 120,000 albums. Like, your brains must have just exploded at that point, Andy. Well, I was, whenever I was told that, I was behind paying my phone bill. I was living in East Belfast. And uh, I do remember my flatmate saying that we've got to pay this phone bill, you know, and I was going, okay. And I think I had something like 15 quid in my wallet. And about 10 minutes later, the phone rang and it was her manager saying you sold 110,000 copies of the record. And I was going, well, that's not really any help to me because I can't pay the phone bill at the minute. And it was like sort of, I was renting this house in East Belfast and, and Fife was up in the Fort William in Belfast. I think Mike was in the Holy Lands in Belfast. Yeah, we were all living in these tiny little apartments and stuff. But I think the other thing too was that we were doing was we just worked so hard. I mean, one thing, I don't know if you you know this, but at one point, Fife and Michael shared a house together uh, in Fitzwilliam, just off Fitzwilliam in Belfast. And I think it got to the point where all of us just realized we'd spent so much time in each other's pocket. Because if we had done, we'd never, we'd always been either writing, rehearsing or hanging out. Because we, we, we hung out together as friends a lot as well. And I suppose at this point in time, we had never actually stopped it's nearly three years full stop at that yeah, point. We, 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 never, we never stopped at any point, you know, when it says, oh, we're on a major record label. John Peel's still playing this. And, you know, we've got into the charts in Ireland and the UK. People are liking us all across the world. This record's coming. That never crossed our minds. It was almost like we were always busy. And I think that's a good thing because it meant that we didn't get kind of distracted by the, the whistles and bells of the whole, you know, rock and roll thing the gigs were getting bigger and bigger and selling out the sfx in dublin and mm. things like that andy big gigs that was meant so much to me because listening to your show with the whipping boy and they'd seen this was it three four nights with the bunny man yeah and i remember seeing gigs in the sfx you know we would there was obviously a lot of bands didn't play in the north of the country as much for the political situation there so myself and my mates would go to the sfx quite a lot to see gigs or we could you know and uh it was such a legendary gig to us. Everyone had yeah. played there. And I remember like whenever we got to headline that, it was such a big deal for us. Absolutely. So I suppose it would have been into 90... I suppose, well, maybe you'll tell me. Maybe it was 92. But at some point, he got to go to the US then, which just must have been so exciting. Well, we did We did a, a recce. First of all, it was bizarre. They flew us over for... One of those CMJs or something? Uh, like no, it was a weird one. They flew us. They wanted to, to fly us over to do... The first time they flew us over was opening for the Screaming Trees in New York. All right. Uh, uh, Mark, Lanigan's Mark Lanigan's band. band and they, we were big fans. And you, they used to be on SST for a while. They'd release records on Sub Pop. And it was, was it the Irving Plaza or somewhere like that? And they said, look, well, you've now signed to AM, so we'll fly you over there. You'll do the gig. And while you're doing the gig, you know, you can meet the record company and we'll fly you back. And because it was, it was those were the days when record companies would spend money. So it was the first time they brought Kerrang! over. You know, and a crown was a metal magazine. Yeah, and uh, yeah, obviously, yeah. I remember us thinking at the time, well, it's a metal magazine coming over to talk to us. And 
that was the first time we met them. But we, we got flown home then after that. Um, and we were only home two weeks. And then they said, well, we're going to bring you back for a very small promotional tour. And then that was it. You know, we went, we, we played the sort of usual suspects, LA and New York, Chicago, Boston and uh, San Francisco uh, with the nurse record. And we met people there and we did the whole, you know, uh, meeting magazines and radio stations. So that was the start of it then. That's when we kind of realized that, oh yeah, and about the same time, going back to the phone, but we sat down and um, we decided that we would pay off Michael and Fife's uni um, debt that they owed. Loans. And I would um, not, I would sort of let the flat I had go and I'd, I'd be able to get myself a little bit because it was going to be on the road so much. There was no point paying the rent whenever I was there. And yeah. uh, I'd only recently given up the job. I'd worked for, for a well-known tire company for a while as well. So that discussion was hard. You know, so we all still had like, we were all you know, still doing things whenever we'd, we'd still signed to A&M. Andy, mentioning the tires yeah. there, okay. Here's a quote from back in 92. Mm. He said, um, I don't like letting myself get too wound up in all mm. of this. I love making music. I've wanted to travel. But in the end, I'm like the glue man. I could wake up tomorrow and I'd be back where I started working in the tyre factory, trying to save up some money to put out a single. So that's 92. Yeah, that's true. Well, do you know the story of the glue man? No, please you know, tell me. This There was a friend of ours called Gary... Um, I'll, I'll spare him the blushes to send a surname. He knocked about it with us when we were kids. And this this scared the bejesus out of us, this story. he To this day, he claims it's true. Uh, a lot of them used to sniff glue, a lot of the ones I knocked about with, right? And he sniffed glue, and he was from a place called White Abbey, and he sniffed glue with his friends one day. He got up, he came home, had his tea with his his parents. And a few weeks later, he had he'd just left school. He got a job for a furniture company. And I can't remember the name of them. They're from Carrick Fergus. He used the big pink trucks. And he got the job driving the truck. And about six months later, he met um, a girl and started dating her. And he got promoted at the tire company. And he, they were planning their wedding. And he woke up one morning and he was back in the field. He had dreamt six months of his life. And he swore that he lived six months, every second, every minute. And that whenever he told us that story, he, he, swear, he swore... He lived six months of his life and then woke up and he was back in the field with a bag of glue. That's a film, Andy. Isn't that? That's a twilight. It's so fantastic. But that's terrifying. That's freaky. You know, it's really freaky. And that was that. And I think, you know, I think also the background that we have in the band, regardless of that, you know, story, we always kind of knew the kind of the nature of the music that we made. I know the kind of the way that I look, the ages that we were, the backgrounds we were from. It wasn't something that might last a long time and the important thing for us was always it's a cliche but it's playing the music was important for us I didn't really care that if at some point I ended up playing golf with Eric Clapton that wasn't why I played the guitar and set up effects pedals in front of me and it certainly wasn't why the other two did it that was kind of why we, it was it was weird it did feel very very bizarre for a band like Therapy when we started whenever we did go to the major label because we did feel like outsiders, you know, we never felt like if we, whenever we turned up at any um, more corporate events or magazines or, or showcases, we always felt like the outsiders in the room. Yeah. Cause as you said, you know, you weren't a Kerrang band, but yet you could still happily fit into Kerrang. Mm. 
just as much as you could with something like Select or Enemy or, you know, MTV 120 Minutes or yeah. whatever, you know. It was it was a strange period, that period, wasn't it? It was, and it was, you know, I think people take it for granted now. I remember the first time we were, I mean, this is jumping ahead a couple of years now, but the first time we played, was known Castle Donington. Oh, yeah, yeah, We yeah. got that and we were on, I think, we were on in the main stage second, but it was like Zach Wilde was on the bill and Aerosmith were headlining. I think Pantera were playing as well. Even second on the bill, you'd still be playing in front of 30,000, 40,000 people. Oh, no, it was, yeah. But, 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 I do, but I do remember um, Phil Alexander, the editor of Kerrang, who had got to know us and who Phil's got an incredible, incredible taste in music. And he sat down with us in, in London and we were all happy. And he said, lads, don't want to burst your bubble. But, you know, you've got short hair. You don't have really guitar solos. Just brace yourselves, because this could go spectacularly wrong. <laughs> you know, and you've seen the footage of Donington back in the day with the bottles of urine fan about. Thankfully, yeah. that didn't happen. But that was at a point where, you know, having short hair playing in front of a rock audience was a, was unusual. It's not yeah. now. You know, you look at, I don't know, Download Festival, the Fest now. The majority of people there have short hair. People have synthesizers, decks, whatever. But back in that day, there was us. There was Faith No More. There was Curb Dog. There was Helmet, and that was kind of the only people really doing kind of short-haired, sort of quasi-proto-metal. Everybody else, if they played metal, had you know the full long hair cut off denim, and, and it was unusual. So did you always feel like outsiders, Andy, you know, considering where you're from, considering the situation in the North at the time, considering the fact that mm. ye, you know, came out of that indie southern scene, you know, I mean, Jesus, John Loader had done all those crass records, for God's mm. sake. And then, as you said, but still not being fully accepted by the metalers. Like, did that make you this very tight, independent, outsider kind of feeling unit? Well, it did. And I mean, we always felt uh, maybe disembodied is the wrong word. But being from the north of Ireland, um, you know, down the middle, we had a Protestant, a Catholic, and somebody from mixed parentage. None of us cared about religion or cared about politics, but it was hard to avoid. And this band that we had was our way of avoiding it. And we felt like mongrels. We felt as if we didn't belong anywhere. We, we, had, we always said in the band, we didn't have a flag. If we were completely British, we could have said, well, you know, I mean, we're, we're British Protestants from, the, from Northern Ireland. We didn't feel like British Protestants. No, no, I didn't. I was the prod in the band. Mike was Catholic. Michael went to a Protestant grammar school where, you know, he sat out like a sore thumb because he was a, a Catholic. You know what I mean? Going to this Protestant grammar school. Five had mixed parents and it came from a single family. And he never, ever fit it in anywhere. So the three of us found this sanctuary within the band. And it's different now. You know, post the Good Friday Agreement, things are a lot different up north. But back then it was... We didn't even feel at home in our own backyard, if that yeah. makes any sense. And then whenever we, I think we always say the same thing about growing up in the North. No bands ever really played. And when they did, we would go and see them. I think one of the first bands, me and I remember whenever I met Fife and we loved Minor Threat and we loved uh, Husker Du um, and we loved all, you know, uh, DC Punk. But I remember one of the first gigs we went to as friends was Sugar Cubes because it was a gig, not because we particularly liked it. It was great. The second gig was House of Love. Because they came to Belfast. The third gig was Ride. Yeah, three three very different bands. Went to see Wonder Stuff, because Michael liked the Wonder Stuff. 
And then I think, you know, we would, but in between this, we go and see Pink Turds in Space or FUAL in the war zone, like real yeah. brilliant punk bands, or we would see Pig Ignorance, or we'd see um, Three Ring Psychosis, bands like this playing. But we'd see everyone, and I think that rubbed off because we would go and see a band that maybe did something slightly different. We'd incorporate it into our music, electronic music, whatever. And it it meant that we didn't just have the one kind of style. Yeah. But and, but I think that was the way that it was like a sanctuary for us in those days. We had Tim Wheeler on this podcast um, a few episodes ago, Andy. Oh, yeah. And Tim was saying that, um, obviously, they were too young to remember the first wave of kind of uh, northern punk, so on and so forth. But to them, year cool. success was like such a huge influence to see that ye had managed to kind of um, get out of Belfast. And he said that was just extraordinary growing up as a teenager watching ye, you know. No, I remember because I've known Tim ever since. And I remember meeting Tim at the limelight one night whenever he had a demo tape on a uh, the flat that I used to rent in East Belfast when I left, it was a lad that worked with Ash, got my room. It was a small community, but yeah. That's what he said. He said that actually, yeah. And I, I remember he's, I remember them giving me the very first demo tape. I still have it actually. I found it when I moved house a couple of years ago and I still have it. eBay, Andy. No, I'm gambling. I would never ever let that go because it's very, I love that band and I would never let that tape Absolutely. Go. Yeah. Come here to me. Um, into 93 then, and, and you mentioned it earlier. Oh, there it is. Hmm. Um, I'm one of those people that stayed with you. This was so different then. I'm holding up the next EP, which of course was the um, Short Sharp Shock EP with Screamager. And what was his name again? He was uh, uh, Chris Sheldon. Chris I Sheldon, think, yeah. Was the producer that AM yeah. paid for. This was a, a step into a different world, really. Would you describe it like that, Andy? Maybe how would you describe it? I mean, this came about with we had it was that became the lead single we were going to do an ep initially we were going to do something like baby teeth and pleasure death again and the we didn't say we didn't have scream major that was going to be a lead single the record label sent us into a place in putney called rich studios to write and we had chris sheldon now chris sheldon wasn't a big known producer he'd done a couple of things but again it was a thing where we wanted someone that we were comfortable with I think he had done the House of Love that you mentioned there earlier. Yeah. I think he had done. And the he's House done. Of Love. He's done Blue Aeroplanes and people like that. He came down. He'd seen us before a lot of times, like the band. He wanted to do the band, and we played him totally random man. Uh, we played him auto surgery, and we played him Scream Major, and he liked all of them. He thought Scream. We had all sort of song called Evil Elvis, which ended up as a B side down the line, and he thought. The songs were really good. He said, how do we feel comfortable going with this melodic direction? And that is, long story short, that's how we ended up making the Trouble Gum record because he basically, he said after Scream Major, he said, well, that's really, really poppy. Um, have you got any more songs like that? And we had Die Laughing and we had Nowhere. Uh, and we we had songs like Trigger Inside. But when it, funny enough, we we released, we recorded those songs. Oh, good man. That's brilliant. Because Thank you. Probably... A load of kids heard you for the first time through these singles that came out through 93, these uh, like Face the Strange and and sure, like Screamager got you onto Top of the Pops, if I remember correctly. No, did that, so, that's where most people heard us, to be honest. There's another, this is another world. Yeah. This is like, I mean, the 110, 120,000 copies yeah. of Nurse are nothing compared to what's coming down the road. No, but I think the funny thing was we... Um, 
whenever we actually, funny enough, we wanted to release an EP and the record company again, they were, you know, they were humoring us. Okay, well, you know, they've done okay. And we took the EP to them and our A&R guy went, he actually, and I, fair play to him, he actually went, so this song's Screamager. It's a brilliant song. He said, I think it sounds like something that the undertones of the Ramones could have put out, but it's a lot heavier, obviously. But is it going to alienate your fan base? And at the time we said, well, it's part of a concept. It's an EP. It's called Short Sharp Shock. It's, you know, it's going to have a lime green cover. And he went, okay. But then that obviously became the lead radio single because it is an EP. It isn't Scream Major. It's called the Short Sharp Shock EP. It's meant to be an EP. And that kind of then changed the, the direction that we went from there on into a certain extent just for the next few years. But yeah, that was never meant. We didn't come in with a song called Scream Agent or we want this to be a single. We wanted to release an EP. And I think the other track, we were going to do a six-track EP. So the track Evil Elvis, which ended up on a, a B-side somewhere, was going to be on the six-track EP. And then I think they just said, look, there's no point doing a six-track EP because it falls in that netherworld. It's not an album or it's not a single. We'll make it a four-track single and then we can we can go down that road. How did you survive the, how did you survive the next two years? Because it's just a juggernaut then of like, we step onto this machine and off we go. Absolutely amazing. Yeah, I think it was just, I think after Scream Major, we didn't stop until after Fife had left the band. We literally did not stop because we, we toured all in 93. We were in America twice. We were in Japan. We were around, we were in Europe three or four times. Then we did the Trouble Gum album and we did, I think, three world tours that year. And then we were home for a week and we did Infernal Love, the next album. And we toured that. And I think Fife left the band January 96. And that was the very first time we were able to take stock. We were all exhausted. And that whenever Fife had left the band, we'd already planned an American tour. So, But we were able to defer that for a few months until we kind of got Graham Hopkins in and Martin McCarrick. But... Yeah, that, and that was actually probably, <laughs> that was the first time off we'd actually had. I can't remember the exact year, but it was after after year version of Diane. At some point, I co-promoted a Grant Hart gig in Cork. A few gigs, uh, he did four or five gigs in Ireland, okay? And I can remember, mm-hmm. it was Nancy Spain's in Cork, a place where you played, I think, your first gig in Cork, mm-hmm. if I remember correctly. Yeah, yeah. But um, there were so many kids came into that Grant Hart gig because they'd heard your cover mm. of Diane. And I just thought that was brilliant. Yeah. I thought like, how brilliant is that, that a younger generation are discovering this great band through um, through your cover version? I mean, they, that band meant so much to me that if that was the only thing ever came out of us doing that song, was it more people discovered who's could do? And I remember when it first came out, he said that we had accidentally changed one of the lines in the song. And he had gone into crying, rightly so, and said, I don't know why they changed the song and why they did it. I got his phone number from a mutual friend and phoned him up and said, Grant, if you don't like our version of it, I swear we'll never, ever play it again and I'll disown it. And he said, no, 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 play it. And we played Bricks in the Academy and Grant and his band opened. And then I didn't hear from him for ages. And a couple of months before he died, in my inbox one day, uh, the blue, there was an email from Grant Hart. And... I do, he said, I hope you don't mind. I got this uh, email of yours off a promoter. I'm thinking of going back out the ro- on the road again. Uh, would you guys be interested in doing something together? Hey, I might even do start doing Diane again. And we we went, yeah, and we, we talked about it and talked about it. And then we didn't hear any more from him. And then he died. 
there was talk. I mean, I think probably about three, four months before he died of us maybe going out on tour together. Incredible. And it was like, it was after not hearing from him for years. Amazing. All of a sudden, and it was like you know, to this to this day, you know, it's. I think the the two people, Grant Hart and Pete Shelley, hit me hit me the hardest out of anyone that I've I grew up with. They, I mean, whenever Grant Hart died, I I couldn't concentrate. You know, I couldn't do anything for ages, and I think I got the most emails and and texts from people whenever he went. And Pete Shelley was my hero when I was fourteen, and the same whenever he died. But yeah. That I always think, what would have happened if you know he'd have been, we'd have been able to do some shows with him, and you know what 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 would have been like now, several years after the event, you know. Andy, I was looking at some of the set lists over the last few months. Songs from Nurse still in the set. I was thinking about. Yeah, yeah. Teeth Grinder. Um, yeah. Nausea. Um, you've played um, Disgrace Lands, I think, a few times. Um, yeah, yeah. When you're putting those set lists together. Mm-hmm. The body of work now at this stage, Andy, you know, I, I I can never remember because should I call Baby Teeth and Pleasure Death albums or mini albums? I'm never sure. But it's it could be yeah. it could be 13 or 14 full length albums by now, probably. I'm not 100 percent sure. 15, yeah. 15, 15. There you go. Yeah. And yet three, at least three songs from this album survive in the set to this day. Yeah. That's testament, I yeah. would imagine, to how you feel about this record and those songs, Andy. Well, as a kind of humorous aside, during COVID, on Instagram, I ran a poll with our with our uh, followers and I wanted them to vote for their most popular songs off each album. So I started an album a day and we did every single record we've ever done. We did an Odds and Sods one. Um, so, you know, I think the most popular track on Nurse was uh funnily enough Disgracelands, which surprised me. I thought it would be Teeth Grander. I thought even maybe not. It was Disgracelands is the ever our fans' most popular track. The least favorite was Zipless. And when I collated all the votes of all our 15 albums, Zipless was the only track that got zero votes. It's the most disliked track in therapy's entire canon. <laughs> 15 albums. So of all 15 albums, that was the one track that got zero votes. <laughs> yeah. you got to come out and play it first. <laughs> That's what everyone said whenever I announced that. Everyone said, you got to do this. you got to put that in the set. Yeah. And I listened to it today. It wasn't too bad. I think, you know, it's, it's, um, I was listening to it last night and again today. I thought, what is it about it? There's some really cool bits in it, but it's, uh, I don't know. Yeah, but yeah, we still play that. I mean, we one other track we occasionally throw into is Accelerator. Accelerator, yeah, yeah. Um, I think yeah. the one that we've never played live, even back in the day, was Deep Sleep. Okay. Because Five couldn't drum it and sing it at the same time. It was a bit too tough. Yeah. Um, and Hypermania was kind of thrown together in the studio. But I actually, funny enough, listened to him and I said, I like that track a lot now. Yeah. And I think it's something that we could do really well. But yeah, deep sleep. I don't think I'll ever get. We'll ever see the light of day, and uh, probably not zipless. Although you never know, it might be one that we should work on. <laughs> I see the album. I see Nurse kind of as a as this bridge mm. between the early two EPs and then that run of um, coloured seven inches that came in ninety three. Yeah, yeah. I see Nurse as this bridge between those two sides of the band. Does that make sense to you? It does actually. It does. And funny, you was mentioned this. You mentioned Chris Sheldon earlier on. Uh, Chris. Is still producing, and he did our last album um, that we that we that we made. He was the producer, and he did mention that at some point in the future he would like to do an album with us, which was like a kind of twenty first century version of Nurse. He said he quite. He said at the time when he did Trouble Gum and Short Sharp Shock and Scream Major with us, 
obviously what they did was they made our song a lot more, our sound was a lot more guitar oriented. But he said what he liked listening back to uh, Nurse now was the space between all the instruments. It got a very post-punk aesthetic. Yeah. And he often wonders, you know, how that would work with the way therapies, our, our musical lexicon, you know, the way that we look, our musical language we have today. Yeah. And I think he has a point. And yeah, we were right whenever we rehearsed some stuff recently. Uh, it was something that came through our mind because some of those little lines, like in Disgrace Land, the, the guitar line on its own with no rhythm beneath it, it sounds quite forlorn and it's it's quite beautiful. And the drums really cut across. And yeah, but you're right. It was it was almost like it was the it got people ready. And you know, most people that, that know us, you know, you, your good self, you know, Baby Teeth and Pleasure Death, as as do most people of a certain age in Ireland. But for a lot of people worldwide, therapy started with Nurse. You know, it that was the first time. Nurse and then Troublegum, yeah. It was the introduction. Andy, you've a whole string of dates between now and the end of the year. Are you still enjoying it? I mean, because, like, the road can be tough, can't it? I love it. I obviously, we were, I think the this is, that's my happy place whenever we're out playing. And what I like about it is, obviously, we've been around for so long now. These next dates are called Love Your Early Stuff. Now, it's our 30th anniversary. We've done this show where we did our 12 UK and Irish top 40 hits. We did that and we played other bits. This one, we're going to be looking at albums and going, what can we choose off this that we haven't played in years, if ever at all? And there'll be stuff there from Pleasure Death, from Nurse, from uh, Never Apologize, Never Explain. We're currently putting together a set list of that stuff. Now, we will disappoint somebody. We always do. Zipless in there. Yeah, but the, well, that's that. You know, that's going to be one of the things. There will be like, well, is it like accelerator is probably going to be in there. Um, you know, we're going to look at doing stuff like well, we did Prison Breaker on the recent tour of Pleasure Death. We did that, yeah. so we'll be looking at stuff like that again. And that's why, because it's great, because it keeps us. We've already recorded a new album. The album's already done, recorded, ready to go next year. So we can just have fun with this uh, old stuff. And I'm looking forward to rocking up in places and playing stuff that they haven't heard in ages and just seeing like if they still like it or if, what kind of reaction it gets. Um, can I ask you, are we, are we ever going to see um, a remastered version of, um, of Baby Teeth and Pleasure Death? They've, they've been remastered already. Now this is the thing. It's in the hands of Southern. Okay. And I get you. We, we got them remastered. Harry Burl did a sterling job, remastered Pleasure Death and that. I don't know what's going on with Sullivan at the minute. It's, it's nothing, you know, there's nothing, no bad blood or anything there. Sure. But we just can't get the records off them. Um, we, we've said to them, you know, well, we can take them off your hands. We can, we've had offers from other record companies to put them out. Uh, and it's something that we'd love to do. Uh, and believe me, if, you know, as soon as we get the green light to do so, we will, because a lot of people have asked them, we'll put them out in vinyl again in remastered versions. Andy, can I get you to pick a track from Nurse? And you might set it up for me and maybe tell me something about it. We'll go out on your choice from Nurse. Okay. Well, I actually think from Nurse, I'm going to pick Disgrace Lance. I think it's got... Um, it started off as a song, uh, Myself and Pfeiffer in a Shop. Uh, it was a boot and it sold punk badges. And there was one with the stars and stripes on it. And the caption on the button badge was, fuck Columbus, he was lost. And it was a pro um, Native American Indian badge. And we absolutely loved the sentiment. And we, whenever we wrote that song, uh, if you listen carefully, it's uh, Andy Warhol by David Bowie, without the kind of little Baroque flourish on the guitar on the main chorus. 
And uh, it goes into kind of that Belgian new beat thing in the verses with little spacey guitar lines. There's a drag back that Fife does on a snare, which is great, and a really kind of chest rattling bass sound. But it's got a great groove. It's epic sounding in all the best ways possible. Big chunky guitar riff. And I suppose it's got that sort of sense of melancholia running through it, which is at the time something that we were only beginning to explore and get away from the anger. And I think it's more representative of the album as a whole, how it sounds. And I mean, Teeth Grinder is an absolute banger, but I don't think Teeth Grinder is representative of the album. Something like Disgrace Lands has got everything in it. Well, here it is. It's Disgrace Lands. It's by Therapy. It's from Nurse, the first long player by Therapy. Andy, it's been an absolute pleasure going back and chatting to you about this period of the band. Thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it, Andy. Oh, thanks, Paul. I really appreciate you having on the podcast and it's been lovely chatting to you about this record. Thank you. Really loved hearing those snippets of Murdy and, and John Peel as well. So appreciate you doing this for us, fella.
thanks again to Andy Kearns and the track that you heard there was Disgrace Lands, taken from Therapy's Nurse. The clip of Murty McCarthy from the Sultans of Ping chatting about the 1991 therapy gig in Cork is taken from a five-part series that was presented by Jim Morrish for UCC 98.3 FM back in 2014. The five programmes featured myself and Murty along with Conor O'Toole and Jim chatting about all the bands we'd witnessed playing Sir Henry's over the years. Sound supervision on those programmes was by Kieran Hurley. I'll leave a link to the programmes in the episode notes. So go to at learn and sing on Twitter or paulmcdermott.ie forward slash podcast and you'll find the episode notes and further information about the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, then please subscribe, like and share. Now, the theme music, it's called Irish Rhapsody Redux. It's by Mark Healy. It's his reworking of a recording of the New Light Symphony Orchestra's version of Victor Herbert's Irish Rhapsody. Until the next episode, goodbye.